All right, well, thank you guys for coming. Um, so before we really jump into this tonight, we are going to be spending some time in Revelation chapter 6, talking about the seven seals, talking about uh, the destruction of the world, talking about all this stuff. But before we really jump into it, I want you guys to think about the second coming of Jesus. And I want you to think about what, what it is that you think about when I say that and what excites you about it and what scares you about it and all of this kind of stuff. Because it's these questions, it's, it's what you think about when you think about the second coming that really helps us understand what we believe about God. Because at some point we have to ask ourselves, like, hey, am I, am I more excited for those who have wronged me to face justice than I am for those who have wronged God to face judgment? Um, am I truly believing the promises that God has given me or am I fearing what's coming to the whole world? See, how we think about the end of the world tells us a lot about how we think about God. And that's specifically what we're going to be talking about tonight. Um, tonight we're going to be diving into Revelation chapter 6. We're going to be discussing the breaking of the seven seals and the destruction of the current heaven and earth. Um, the important thing to keep in mind about all of this is that we're going to see that God has a plan for all things. See, the book of Revelation allows us to live in radical obedience to God because he clearly lays out that he has a plan for all things. He has a plan of salvation for his people and a plan of punishment for the wicked. We can live in the freedom of knowing that no matter what happens to us, all things are in his hands and so we have nothing to fear. Um, finally, before we really jump into this, I want to point out that the seals are introduced, are introduced to us in the same way that the seven letters to the seven churches are. It starts out with the vision of Jesus that then ushers in the what it, whatever is commanded. So it started with the vision of Jesus in the very beginning of Revelation that ushered in the, the letters to the seven churches. Now starts with the revelation of Jesus, this, this vision of Jesus that we talked about last week. And then now it ushers in this, these visions of the seven seals being broken. I also want to point out here that many futurists, we talked about this in the first week, but many futurists would believe that the Great Tribulation begins with the opening of the first seal. This is why we spent so much time talking about that, because from here forward, everything that we talk about, it's going to change drastically depending on how you interpret this book. Now, let's talk first about the, about the four horsemen that we see here. I'm going to go ahead and read the first eight verses here. So starting in verse 1 of Revelation chapter 6, it says, Now I watched when the Lamb opened one of the seven seals, and I heard one of the four living creatures say with a voice like thunder, Come. And I looked, and behold, a white horse, and its rider had a bow, and a crown was given to him, and he came out conquering and to conquer. When he opened the second seal, I heard the second living creature say, Come. And out came another horse, bright red. Its rider was permitted to take peace from the earth so that people should slay one another. And he was given a great sword. When he opened the third seal, I heard the third living creature say, Come. And I looked, and behold, a black horse. And its rider had a pair of scales in its hand. And I heard what seemed to be a voice in the midst of the four living creatures saying, A quart of wheat for a denarius and three quarts of barley for a denarius, and do not harm the oil and wine. When he opened the fourth seal, I heard the voice of a fourth living creature say, Come. And I looked, and behold, a pale horse, and its rider's name was Death, and Hades followed him. And they were given authority over a fourth of the earth to kill with sword and with famine and with pestilence and by wild beasts of the earth. So the first four seals here, each one is accompanied by one of these four angels, the four beasts that it talks about, summoning a rider. 
Um, this references Zechariah in two places. First of all, in chapter 1, verses 8 through 10 that I'll read in a minute. But then secondly, it references Zechariah in, in chapter 6, verses 1 through 8. In both these, it gives the same description of these, these horse coming out. And chapter 6 specifically, it talks about these four chariots, each with multiple horses of, this, of these same colors. But the first place that we see it is in Zechariah chapter 1. In verses 8 through 10, it says, so Zechariah is, he's having visions. And he says, I saw in the night and behold, a man riding on a red horse. He was standing among the myrtle trees in the gin and behind him were red, sorrel and white horses. Then I said, what are these, my Lord? The angel who talked with me said to me, I will show you what they are. So the man who was standing among the, among the myrtle trees answered, These are they whom the Lord has sent to patrol the earth. So again, John is seeing things that he is already familiar with. He's already read about them in Scripture before. He's heard about them before. He's not unfamiliar with what is happening. And what we see is that these writers, they're essentially emissaries sent by God to patrol the earth. This is talked about in Zechariah. This is also explicitly mentioned here where it's, it's Jesus who ushers in these riders and the beasts tell them to come out. And so we see the seals break, the riders come out, and we see them sent out to patrol the whole earth. And in this case specifically, we see that they are sent out to take peace from the earth. And But we, what we also see here is that they can only inflict death with the Lord's permission. We're going to get into that more in a minute. The first horse that we see is the white horse, and there are a few different interpretations to this. Some believe that this is meant to represent Christ, you know, Christ coming in on the white horse, he's given a crown, he comes in to conquer. Um, others believe that this is the Antichrist because it looks like Christ, but Christ is the one who opens the seal, so it's not him. I think it's safe to assume that this is meant to represent those who bring about the red horse and the black horse and the pale horse. I think it's possible that this is meant to represent, you know, Antichrist, those who claim to be sabers, those who claim that power, all of this, but I think it's for sure meant to represent the political rulers and the political leaders of this world who bring about war through their greed and their deceit. And so what we see here is the white horse that comes in and that represents all of these world leaders and these world powers that would come in and that would lead their, their nations and their, the people that follow them into war, which brings about the red horse. So this all leads to the red horse. The red horse symbolizes war and bloodshed. Um, side note here, this is where futurists would take this kind of detour and they would say, hey, this represents the spread of war all over the planet in the midst of the Great Tribulation. However, and we'll talk more about this in a minute, but I, I think a lot of other interpreters would look at this and say, no, this just represents war in general. Like this is not some great war that's happening. This is just a spread of war in the world that we see it as we see it. Now, the black horse comes in and it represents famine and starvation. See, it holds these scales in its hands. And these scales, funny enough, represent rising inflation caused by conflict, which often leads many to no longer be able to afford food. And I hope that you guys are now starting to see the relevance that this has to our, our current time now. Then we have the pale horse, the pale horse, which represents death. Specifically here, death caused by war and famine that we've already talked about, but also disease, specifically epidemics and pandemics, and wild animals. Essentially, we see the, the progression of death occurring across all four horsemen, leading to the last one, which represents death itself. Hence, why they are often called the four horsemen of the apocalypse. However, please remember, 
again, we've talked about this before, but this is all symbolism. They're not actually going to be four horses that bring these things about. Like these are things that, based on how we're interpreting this, these are things that, you know, maybe we don't know exactly when they happen or how they happen or if it takes place in one time or over the period of time, but we can be sure that we're not looking for four horses that are going to be riding through the sky. We're specifically, we're not supposed to be looking for anything. These are just warnings to the people of God. Like, hey, this is, this is going to be happening. Like, we're going to see this. The seals are being broken. These things are going to happen on the earth. That's what's being said to the audience in Revelation. There are three big things that this shows us that I want us to get out of this, this passage about the four horsemen. The first one, first thing that the horsemen show us is God's judgment of a sinful world. The horsemen show us God's judgment of a sinful world. Okay, we need to remember first and foremost, these horsemen are released by God. Like they're sent by God to, they're, they're released by Christ himself when he breaks the first seal. He knows what's going to happen. He purposefully releases, he purposefully breaks these first four seals to release the first four horsemen. These are instruments of God's judgment for sin upon the world. So this is essentially God judging the world for its sin. It's why he's sending them out. It's why he's allowing them to go out into the world and take peace from the world and kill people and allow people to die by each other's hands. Second, the horsemen show us God's restraint and mercy on a sinful world. The horsemen show us God's restraint and mercy on a sinful world. Here it specifically says that God only allows the horsemen to kill one-fourth of the population, which obviously this seems like a lot to us. But you have to remember that with us, the people of God, still being the minority in the world, this is actually not a lot. This doesn't begin to encompass all of the wicked people in this world. This is God showing restraint and allowing time for repentance from these people. Even if he knows that they're not going to repent, Never let it be said that he didn't give them every opportunity to. So he's showing restraint by not, not just wiping out the world. He's showing restraint by not bringing another flood or, or causing something that wipes out the entire population of the earth. Third, the horsemen show us God's authority over a sinful world. <clears throat> the horsemen show us God's authority over a sinful world. I think it's often easy for us to look at the world around us and only see destruction and pain and all of these things. And it's like, how could God possibly be in control of all these things? And yet we see that even death itself is in his hands. All four of these horsemen were bound by God, released by God, and were limited by God. Like he released them, but he still had control over them. And though he may not be the one directly doing these things, he still allows these things to happen all in his time and all in his the way that he ordains it to happen. So this shows us that everything in this world is still under the authority of God. If he controls death itself, then what do we have to fear? If he has authority over all things, then what things should we be afraid of? That's what this passage is showing us, is that God is still is trying to show us the power and the might of God. This isn't just trying to show us predictions or prophecy about the future. This is trying to show us who God is and the fact that he has power over all of these things, over rulers and leaders and over war and over famine and over ultimately death itself. All of these things he has control over. So 
a lot of different interpretations here. There are some who believe that these events are going to take place, like especially the futurists who believe that these events will happen sometime in the future during some great tribulation. Um, a lot of others believe that these events have already happened in the past and that, you know, they, they, these things happen like when we saw like, you know, plagues, you know, like the bubonic plague or like when we saw big wars, like the, one of the, one of the world wars, you know, a, there are a lot of people who believe these things have already happened and that now we're just still seeing repercussions of this happening. And then there are some that believe that these, these are just representative of events that will continue to happen over and over again in history until the end of time. A lot of different interpretations here, but the bottom line is that whether or not these events are yet to take place, have already taken place, or are happening now, I think we can all agree this holds a specific relevance to us today. Because the same God who is over the rulers and political leaders of this world is over things like inflation, something specifically described in this passage. And the same God who holds us, who gave us life, holds our death in his hands. The same God who knows all things has authority over all things. We can take hope from this passage knowing who God is and knowing that he is in control of all things and has authority over all things. That's one of the great things about Revelation and passages like this is that they show us the immense power and glory of God over all things. And one last note on this before we move on. As easy it is as it is for us to look at these things and and think that they are talking about world events that are only happening now. Um, you know, you guys probably see this a lot. People who are on Facebook convinced that the end of the world is coming because of what's happening around us. Let's, 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 let's go to this passage. And instead of using this to think that the world is about to end and think that all the apocalypse is happening and stuff, let's be honest about the fact that this is not the first time that even just our country alone has experienced inflation like this. It's not the first time that we've dealt with war in the world. It's not the first time that we've had a pandemic like this. It's not even the worst time that we've seen any of these things. These things happen all throughout history. Let's not let recency bias warp our view of scripture. Instead, we need to stay firmly rooted in the fact that this, this book isn't this book isn't meant for us to point to specific events and try and figure out when the end of the world is happening. This book was just meant to show us more about who God is. It's meant to give us information about who he is and how we can worship him more deeply. So then let's talk about the martyrs, the next few verses here. Picking up in verse 9. So we've, we've seen the four horsemen come in. We've seen uh, about a fourth of the population is going to experience death because of this. But then we see in verse 9, it says, When he opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain for the word of God and for the witness they had borne. They cried out with a loud voice, O sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long before you will judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? When they were each given, then they were each given a white robe and told to rest a little longer until the number of their fellow servants and their brothers should be complete, who were to be killed as they themselves had been. So, essentially what we see here, verses 9 through 11, a big important part of what they do is they show us why the earth must be judged so harshly. See, if the wicked hate God, then they surely hate those who belong to God. The church was enduring and would continue to endure intense persecution at the time when Revelation was written. 
So they would have identified heavily with this part here. Like they would have read this part about the martyrs, about all those who have been slain. And they would have been like, yes, we, we have friends who that's happened to. Like we have, we have people around us who are dying for this cause. We've seen this all around us. They would have read this passage and been like, yes, like we want to know, God, when are you going to avenge those we've lost? When are you going to, to kill the wicked in this world? And I know for us, it's harder because we're so removed from that. Like we're so removed from this idea of martyrdom and persecution, all of these things. But I think that we can all agree that this one persecution is still happening in the world today. And two, like we can see the seeds of it all around us, even in our own country. Like maybe it's not something we deal with, but this is something that's going to be relevant. Maybe for our kids, maybe for their kids. And what we see here is that. Even we today are still suffering for the sake of the gospel. Maybe it's not dying at the hands of those who persecute us, but we still suffer for the gospel. And that's this passage relates specifically to all those who had been martyred for the gospel, all those who were suffer, suffering for the gospel, all those who were facing persecution. It shows us why the world must be judged. See, we know that God cares deeply for his people. And so when somebody comes along and starts murdering his people, he cares deeply about that and wants to see those put to death who had done it. See, the fact that there are those who hate God so much that they would kill his people shows the need for judgment in this world. But what we see here specifically is that as believers, we should desire biblical justice. We should long for the day when those who blaspheme God can do so no more. All of this shows us this biblical framework for viewing the world around us, but it also shows us why this world needs judgment. Like for us, it might be hard. We might look at the first few verses here and be like, hey, that's kind of harsh. Why would God send war and famine and disease and do all of these horrible things to the world? And it's like, no, 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 the world fought against God first. They deserve every single bit of his wrath. It's amazing that he would even hold back some. And here we see why, because we see the blood of those who are slain. We see those, the souls of those under the altar who had been killed in the name of Christ. But then finally here, I want to point out verse 11. See, verse 11 is likely a fulfillment of the Great Commission. It talks here in verse 11 about, you know, God is essentially saying to them, like, hey, you have to wait a little bit longer. You have to, you have to just be patient a little bit longer, rest a little bit longer until the number is complete of those of you who are going to be killed. This shows us something important. This is likely a fulfillment of the Great Commission. Okay, the, the gospel will be brought to every tribe, tongue, and nation. And this is likely going to happen by the blood of martyrs, like by those who are willing to die for the gospel, by those who are willing to go to unreached people groups and be killed for bringing them the gospel. What this shows us is that God has set a certain number of those who would be killed for his for the advancement of the gospel and for the sake of Christ this shows us that God has a set plan for the return of Christ okay he has a set plan for the return of Christ because what this passage is probably telling us is that there's going to be a point where enough people have been martyred that the gospel has gone to all the nations and that is going to be the moment that he that Christ returns and he knows exactly when that day, hour, and minute is going to be. He already knows when it's happening. Okay, This isn't all random for him. He has set all of this in motion from the beginning of time, and this has always been his plan, the fulfillment of the Great Commission, every tribe, tongue, and nation being brought the gospel. And ultimately, that happens through people who are martyred for the sake of Christ. But I think, once again, 
This shows us his authority over death. This shows us God's authority over death. Guys, he holds all things in his hands. He knows when we all die and how. He, his plan allows these martyrs to die knowing that they have fulfilled his purpose for their lives. And he can be glorified in all of this. It's hard to read passages like this and know that there are those who are going to die for the sake of the gospel because that's hard and it hurts. But we can also read passages like this and know that it's all for his glory and that he has a plan for all of it, even the death and despair that we face in our lives. And finally, we get to the end of heaven and earth. Picking up in verse 12. It says, When he opened the sixth seal, I looked and behold, there was a great earthquake. And the sun became black as sackcloth, the full moon became like blood, and the stars of the sky fell to the earth as the fig tree sheds its winter fruit when shaken by a gale. The sky vanished like a scroll that is being rolled up, and every mountain and island was removed from its place. Then the kings of the earth, and the great ones, and the generals, and the rich, and the powerful, and everyone, slave and free, hid themselves in the caves and among the rocks of the mountains, calling to the mountains and the rocks, fall on us and hide us from the face of him who is seated on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. For the great day of their wrath has come, and who can stand? See, these verses here give us a view into the day that heaven and earth will pass away. They will be destroyed. The new heaven and earth will be formed for us. There are those who do not believe that these reverses, that these verses refer to the end times. Okay, there are some who don't believe that, but we're going to operate under the assumption that they do. So, what we can take from this, we see all of these things happening. Like we see stars falling from the sky to earth. We see the mountains being wiped away, the islands being wiped away. We see everything on the face of the earth being flattened. We see all of this crazy stuff happening that nobody can survive. But that's not what people are scared of. And I think that's worth pointing out here, that the thing that really strikes fear into the lives of everyone who's still alive on this earth when this happens is that they all want to be hidden from the face of God. They all want the mountains to fall on them. They want the seas to swipe them, to, to sweep them away. They want these horrible things to happen to them because they don't want to face the wrath of God, the wrath of the Lamb of God. See, and I love it because this is just like every apocalypse movie we've ever seen. You know, this, all the stuff about the, about the meteor showers and the, and the stars falling and the mountains falling and all this stuff. But I think the important thing here is that it seems scary and that's because it's supposed to. Even the leaders and rulers of this world who fought against God will know their place. It is meant to strike fear into the wicked. This is the full wrath of God on sinners. It is the number one worst thing that could possibly happen to a sinner, to someone who is opposed to God. This is the absolute scariest day that they could possibly imagine. See, for us as believers, passages like this are meant to remind us what it is that we are saved from. Passages like this remind us what we are saved from. The imagery right here, the crying out of those on the earth, that should be us. That is what we all deserve because we've all sinned against the holy and righteous God. And yet, in his love, he saved us from his own wrath. In his love, he didn't allow us to experience this. That's the best news that we could possibly receive. 
that we can read passages like this and breathe a sigh of relief, knowing that we are not destined for this kind of punishment for our sins, not because of anything we've done, but because of what he has done for us. We can read passages like this, know that it is a call to repentance, but for us, it is joy because the wickedness of this world of this world will pass away and a new earth will be created that is not marred by sin, that is not marred by the effects of sin, that isn't full of wicked people who hate God. Instead, it'll be a new heaven, a new earth, where we can live freely in communion with God, our creator. And ultimately, what this points to is the fact that God has a plan to save his people and to judge the wicked. God has a plan to save his people and to judge the wicked. So what does this do for us? Knowing that he can say, knowing that he will save his people and judge the wicked, knowing that, that death is in his hands, knowing that he controls all things, knowing that he has authority, knowing all of this knowing that he will avenge those who have been slain for him. All of this allows us to live in freedom. It allows us to not just live for him, but to live radically for him. It allows us to breathe easy, knowing that he who controls all things, including death itself, has a plan for us and will not let anyone or anything take us away from him. It allows us to rest in the fact that there is nothing in this world that can harm us outside of him, and he has saved us from his own wrath, the one thing that we should fear the most. Ultimately, we can read these passages and have hope that despite the fact that this language is strong and it's heavy, and it seems like it's a lot, we can read this knowing that he is still good, he still loves us, and that we can still hope for the coming days. No matter what's happening in the world around us, no matter how dark things get, he is still God. He is still on the throne. He still has authority over all things, and we can still rest in that fact. Now let's pray. God, I thank you so much. God, I thank you so much for the goodness that can be found in these passages. God, there, there's a lot here that's heavy, that's difficult to talk about, that's, that's hard for us to wrap our minds around. There's a lot here that seems frightening or scary. There's, there's a lot here in this chapter, and yet we can still pull goodness from it because that's who you are. You are good. We can still see your love and your grace for us in it. We can still put our hope in you, knowing that even though all of this is true, that it gives us hope knowing that this world is going to pass away and a new, better world will be created in its place. God, be with us tonight as we, as we dive into this time of discussion. And God, as we let these words sit on our hearts, help it to seep in. Help us, help us to be able to glorify you in our thoughts and our words and our actions and everything that we do. Help us to know you for the love that you possess for us. And help us to not shy away from the hard truths found in your word. And I pray all of this in Christ's holy and precious name. Amen.